Okay, Acts chapter 8 this morning. Acts chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter 8 verses 26 to 40. Let's read the story. This is really a, a wonderful story. It's one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. So let's read the story and we'll go back and we'll see what the Lord would have for us today. It's Acts chapter 8, verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a, slam before, a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Well, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. I've entitled the message, Partnering with God in Reaching the Lost. And, uh, you know, being a, a partner with somebody can be really exciting and it can be really fulfilling. Just think of Wilbur and Orville Wright, the two Wright brothers, who together created the first successful flying machine. Or think of Simon and Garfunkel, who created some of the best folk. You guys don't maybe don't even remember these guys. <laughs> In the late 60s, early 70s, Simon and Garfunkel had uh, some of the best folk songs of any, of any duo out there. Bridge Over Troubled Waters, Sounds of Silence, all those classics. Or think of Abbott and Costello. Or Laurel and Hardy. Look at that partnership. Or think of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, the ones who founded Apple. I mean, partnerships sometimes can do amazing things. And if you've ever been married, you're already in a partnership, right? Husband and wife are partners. They come together and the Lord has a plan for them. But the most astounding thing of all to me is that God has invited us into a partnership with himself. 
And I say that from some passages in the New Testament. The one I'm thinking about now is 1 Corinthians 3.9. Paul says there, we are God's fellow workers. What's a fellow worker? It's someone who works with God. Someone who works alongside of God. Who's a partner with God in some kind of a task or goal or mission or that kind of thing. We are fellow workers with God. So I wondered, do you understand how great a privilege it is that the creator of the universe would allow you to be his partner in his work? I mean, just think on that. The one who created the universe is a fellow worker. You are a fellow worker with him. In Acts chapter 8, we find a man, Philip, who is a fellow worker with God. And in fact, Acts 21 verse 8 says that his name was, well, they, they called him Philip the Evangelist. He's the only person in the New Testament who's ever called an evangelist. So we ought to take some cues from Philip if we want to learn how to do the work of evangelism because he's the evangelist of the New Testament. And in the first half of chapter 8, we find Philip the Evangelist working with the multitudes in Samaria. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's preaching Christ. And many of them are coming to Christ and being baptized. So that's the first half of Acts chapter 8. The second half of Acts chapter 8, we find Philip the Evangelist witnessing to one person, a eunuch from Ethiopia. So he goes from the multitudes to one individual. But in both cases, he's extremely effective. God uses him in powerful ways. And I think we even, it's not stated explicitly, but when we get to chapter, or verse 40, I think you'll be able to see that God uses Philip even to raise up believers and churches in other villages and towns, not just Samaria. Now, there's some striking similarities between what Philip does in the first half of the cha- Acts chapter 8 and what he does in the second half of Acts chapter 8. He preaches the same message in both. Look at Acts 8, 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And then in Acts eight thirty-eight. Philip, I'm sorry, it's not 838, it's 835. Philip opened his mouth and he began from that scripture to preach Jesus to him. So he preached Christ to the Samaritans, he preached Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch. The hearers responded the same way in both. Both of them believed and were baptized. In 812, it says when they believed Philip, Preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Well, in the same way, verse 38 says, He ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Also, the converts experienced the same effect in both. In chapter 8, verse 8, it says, There was much rejoicing in that city. And in 8.39, it says that the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. So wherever Philip ministered the gospel and preached Christ, there was rejoicing that would follow from that. And then the final thing is that God partnered with Philip in both cases. In Samaria, God worked with him. He confirmed the word by signs, miracles that followed his ministry. And then in the second half of Acts chapter 8, God worked with Philip as well. He didn't do signs and miracles in that case, but he did prepare the eunuch's heart to receive the truth that Philip would preach. 
Now, think about this for just a minute. God has chosen to work with sinful, weak human beings in bringing people to Christ. And you might wonder, well, why has God done that? He could have done a lot better job if he'd just done it all on his own. God could save people all, all on his own, right? He didn't need to use us in that process. He could have written the gospel in the sky for everyone to read. Or he could have appeared personally in a dream or a vision to each person or spoken audibly to them and told them what the gospel was. Or he could have sent each person an angel who would deliver his message to them. In fact, remember, two chapters later, he's going to send an angel to Cornelius to tell Cornelius to go send, to dispatch some men to go fetch Peter and bring him back so that Peter can preach the gospel to him. But you think... He could have saved a lot of time and effort just by having the angel tell him the gospel right then. But no, the angel doesn't give the gospel message to Cornelius. <laughs> the, the angel simply gives Cornelius the message that you need to send people to bring back Peter, a human instrument that's going to present the gospel to you. So God has chosen for reasons known to him to use sinful, weak human beings like you and me in order to bring the gospel to people and for people to come to Christ and be saved. Now, when God determined to save Cornelius, as I was saying, the angel appears to him. The angel doesn't preach. We can't bring about the salvation of anyone without God's help. All we can do is speak the truth to people, and we can pray for them. And we can try to live a life consistent with the truth that we're preaching. That's about the most that we can do. But God can go further than that. God can take the words of truth and God can make dead sinners alive together with Christ. He can do the miracle of the new birth in their hearts. So we can't do it without God and he won't do it without us. We can't do it without him. He won't do it without us. There is this partnership that God has decided that he's going to enter into with weak saints who have our foibles and our problems and all of our issues and still use people like that to bring the gospel and salvation to people all across the world. So I hope what happens as a result of our time in the word today is that it ignites a hope within you that God would partner with you and that you together with God would see wonderful things take place. That God would use you and you would partner with him. Be a fellow worker together with God to see lost people come to Christ. Now, what we're going to see, I think, as we go through this story is that God always takes the initiative. God's always first. But as God takes the initiative all the way through this story, there are things that Philip does to partner with God as God is taking the initiative. So God will do something and Philip will respond. Philip will partner with him. And so I want us to look at what God does and then how Philip partners with him as instructional for us so that when in our life, when we see God doing certain things, we will fall in line and we'll begin partnering with God to see the Lord do things. So the first thing I see God doing here is that God sent an angel to speak to Philip. In verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, interestingly, that word south, get up and go south, 
It's made up, it's a Greek word made up of two words, two Greek words. One of the words is for day, and the other one is for middle. So literally this word means middle of the day. And so there are some translations that translate this word noon, or noontime, and other translations translate it as south. It can be translated either way. It's only translated one other time in the New Testament, that's Acts 22.6, and there it's translated noontime. I think there might be more reason for us to believe that he's actually saying get up and go at noon to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. There'd be really no reason for, for the angel to tell him go south because he says it's the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. He knows it's south. He's up in Samaria. It's redundant for the angel to tell him to go south because he, he would already know that. But it would not be redundant for the angel to tell him to go at noon because think of this, the timing's got to be just right. You know, if Philip's going to arrive at the right time when that eunuch is traveling down that road, he's got to leave at the right time. So for those reasons, I'm, I'm inclined to believe this uh, noontime is probably a better translation here. See, he's going to need to go back to the people in Samaria, um, tell them goodbye, pack up his things, and get on the road by noon if he's going to make it there at the right time. Now, that's what God did. He sent an angel to Philip, giving him this message. How did Philip partner with God? The angel's message was, get up and go. Verse 26. Verse 27, he got up and went. Get up and go? He responds with obedience immediate. He got up and went. Now, I think that that message from the angel must have been extremely confusing to Philip. Because Philip was being used mightily in Samaria. Right? People are being healed. He's casting out demons. Multitudes are coming to Christ. He's baptizing them. And in the midst of this great, mighty work of God, an angel says, leave. Leave all these people that are coming to Christ and go to this desert road, this desolate place. It's probably a lonely place. I think it even says that. I'm sorry it doesn't, but I'm imagining a desert road to be not a big thoroughfare of lots of people, you know, just a few people coming through. So wouldn't that be confusing if God's mightily using him and he says, just leave. I have something else for you to do. He might have thought, maybe this isn't an angel. Maybe an, e an evil spirit. An unclean spirit is speaking to me, you know? <laughs> he, he might question whether this was really from God or not. And, and folks, God may direct you to do certain things that don't make a lot of sense. Sometimes when God leads us, we, we can't completely understand what he's doing. I think that happened in my life, in the life of our family, back in uh, the year 2000. We moved from Milpitas Bible Fellowship, where I was a full-time pastor. We moved from there up to Sonora. And I had just been becoming more and more convinced that the Lord wanted me to be, he wanted to use me in planting house churches. And so we, we did it. Um, the church was taking care of our family very well. They, they provided well for us financially. I didn't have to worry about that. And now I'm leaving any kind of financial support, and I had zero customers. <laughs> and I just started a window cleaning business a year before. I just learned how to do it. I was new at it. I didn't know if I was going to be able to support our family or not when we left and moved. So we just, we went in faith. 
we bought a house. We moved into the house and said, okay, Lord, now we need you to provide customers <laughs> so we can pay the bills. And the Lord did. He, he provided so well over the years, um, wonderfully. But there was a situation where I felt God was leading, but it didn't completely make sense. It would have made more sense in the natural to stay where we were, where we were taken care of and provided for. But that was the will of God at that time for us. So if you feel God's leading, don't expect that you're always going to know all of the details or it's all going to make sense ahead of time. It probably won't. You're going to have to step out in faith to do it. <clears throat> So that's the first thing I see. God sent an angel with a message to Philip. Secondly, God told Philip what to do one step at a time. All the angel told him to do was to get up and go to this desert road. So he obeys. He got up. He went. He found the desert road. But I'm sure Philip probably would have liked to have known a little bit more information. You know, that's not very much information. Get up from this thriving Revival that's taking place here and go down to that desert road 50 miles away. Well, Lord, I mean, it would have been nice if the Lord would have said something like, I want you to get up and go down to this desert road because when you get there, you're going to see this Ethiopian eunuch driving by in a chariot. And he's going to ask you to come up and join him in the chariot. He's going to be reading Isaiah 53. And you're going to tell him what Isaiah 53 means. And he's going to come to faith. And you're going to stop the chariot and get down and baptize him. And then the Lord is going to translate you 20 miles away to Azotus. And he's going to go back and he's going to evangelize his whole country of Ethiopia. That's the plan. But that would have been nice. But that's not what the Lord told him. The Lord could have told him that. But the Lord doesn't deal with us that way. At least he hasn't dealt that way in my life. He'll give me one step. And if I'm disobedient to that one step, I don't get any further instructions. If I obey that one step, then I'm going to find he's going to give me more instructions when I need it. It just seems like that's the way the Lord works. Um, how did Philip partner with God when God gave him that first step? He simply obeyed. He did the one step, and he waited for further instructions. And I kind of wish the Lord would lay out for us, you know, like a five-year plan. <laughs> you know, this is what's going to happen year one, year two, year three. Okay, got it, Lord. Everything makes sense. But the Lord doesn't lay out a five-year plan. I, this has kind of been happening in my own life lately because I've, I've just sensed the Lord is wanting to move me in a new direction in my life. I, I own a window cleaning company, and there's somebody there that's wanting more responsibility, and I think it's time for him to be appointed general manager and just take over the company, pretty much. I'll still know what's going on, but as of July 1st, he's going to be doing the work of the company, the day-to-day -day work, and I'm going to be out, which gives me a lot more time. And I've been saying, okay, Lord, what's the plan? <laughs> what do you want me to do with this, with this time that I'm going to have? And I don't know yet, but I think when the time is right, the Lord will direct me. It's kind of like stepping out in faith, like when we moved to Sonora. You just have to step out and expect, trust and expect that God's going to show up and he's going to lead you and show you the next point. So be encouraged. If the Lord's given you one step, be obedient to that step. He'll tell you the next step when it's right. Um, the third thing we see God doing is God gave the eunuch a longing for the truth. 
Out of the millions of people on the earth who were living at that time, God directed Philip to this one guy. That should get our attention. God had been preparing this man's heart for some time. And you say, well, Brian, why do you think that? I think that because he traveled from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. Now, that's not a simple thing in those days. That's two, but somewhere between 200 and 500 miles. On the low end, we're talking a two-week journey just to get there and another two-week journey just to get back home. Uh, apparently, he was a Jewish proselyte because he went to worship, not just for sightseeing. He went there to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So somehow the gospel had gotten to his country of Ethiopia. Maybe, um, oh, the, it's just my mind went a blank, but the, the woman that went to Solomon... Yeah, yes, the Queen of Sheba. Historians tell us that she was probably from Africa or from Ethiopia. If that's true, and she had visited Solomon, she may have taken the truth of Judaism back with her to her people, and so there, was, there would be some people there within her country that knew of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and maybe the, this eunuch who is from her own court, he was a royal official, would have learned the truth about Jehovah God. So anyway, she, th this eunuch travels two to three weeks between two and 500 miles just to get there, um, which is a, an amazing thing. I think the Lord was orchestrating the evangelization of Ethiopia, and I think that's why he directs Philip to go to this one man. I think that because there was an early church father, his name was Irenaeus, and he wrote in the second century, he wrote a book called Against Heresies, and he mentions in that book, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but he does write that this Ethiopian eunuch became a missionary among his people. If that's true, then I, it makes good sense why God would take Philip out of a thriving revival, tell him to go 50 miles away to speak to this eunuch because God has plans for a country, a whole country that he wants the gospel to go to. Now, who is the eunuch? What do we know about him? Philip, I think, would have been a bit surprised and amazed when he looks and he sees this chariot. And I don't think there was one chariot. Remember, he is the, he's the treasurer of the queen. So this guy's got a really important position. There's probably a whole retinue of servants that are accompanying him in, on this journey. So Philip looks up, he sees, sees this black man from the coast of Africa riding in a chariot, and even the fact that he's riding in a chariot would have been astounding, because most people don't have chariots. They walk, or they ride a camel, or a, a mule, or a donkey, or something, if they're lucky, if they've got, got an animal. Well, this man's riding in a chariot, so he's a wealthy man. He's got money, and it makes sense, because he's the one who takes care of the, the money of the whole country of Ethiopia at that time. Maybe he was sort of like a secretary of treasury of the time. Candace, we might think that Candace was this woman's name. Like, you know, Candace, is it Candace Bergman or Bergen or something? <laughs> but that's a proper name. But this is not a proper name. It's like Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not a proper name either. Pharaoh means king, the king of Egypt. Uh, the word Candace is speaking about the queen of a country. So...
So he's responsible for all the wealth, and he's right under the queen of the country. The, the king was referred to as the child of the sun in those days, and he was considered far more important than to have to take care of the mundane matters of running some kind of a secular kingdom. Those responsibilities would be given to the queen, and she passed off the financial responsibilities to this man, this eunuch. So it's very possible that this person could have been the third most powerful person in all of Ethiopia. You know, just to consider that for a moment. This is no commoner. This is someone who's going to have an influence in his country. Now, in the Bible, a eunuch could be a castrated male who's put in charge of a king's harem. That's one possibility. But it also could be, the, the word for, um, for a eunuch here does not have to be a castrated male put in charge of a harem. It also could be any kind of a court official, a royal official. We find in Genesis, I believe it's 39, that Joseph goes to Potiphar's house. Potiphar is the same, the same word is used for eunuch there, but it's translated as official. And he wasn't a eunuch. He wasn't castrated because he had a wife. So we, this man is not necessarily a, a peon, a lowly guy who's been castrated and is put over the, the harem. I, I think it's more probable that the word eunuch is simply used because he was an official of the court of this queen. Now, he had come all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, and I, he probably had high expectations of he's going to see God's true people, the covenant people of God, and he's going to worship in God's temple, and he's going to participate in the sacrificial system, and perhaps he's going to be there on one of the sacred festivals like Passover or Pentecost. He came hopeful and expectant, but it appears that he left disillusioned and confused because he came to Jerusalem to worship, but as he's going back home, he's reading the scriptures and he doesn't understand them. So he did not get the light on the scriptures that he had hoped when he came to Jerusalem. He comes hopeful, but he leaves empty. And just the fact that he had a copy of the book of Isaiah is amazing, because the common person doesn't go around carrying scriptures in those days. They were expensive. They were hard to get a hold of. Each one had to be hand copied. And so this guy has wealth. He has enough wealth to buy a copy of the scriptures or to have a chariot. Um, but you can see his spiritual hunger. He's reading the scriptures out loud. How many wealthy guys from Ethiopia are going to travel in a chariot reading the Bible out loud? So he wants to know the truth. Romans 3.11 says that there is none who seek for God. But this man was seeking for God. So it must be that he was seeking for God because God was drawing him. God was working already in his heart because God had a purpose and a plan to bring him to Christ. How did Philip partner with God in all of this? Well, when Philip comes up to him, he hears him reading the prophet Isaiah, and he simply asks him a question. Do you understand what you're reading? Now, try to, try to imagine that situation. Philip's a commoner. This guy is, is royalty, he, and he's rich. He, he might have been sticking his foot in his mouth. He might, he might have offended this man by asking that question. 
I mean, the guy could have responded, who do you think you are to come up to me, a perfect stranger, and insult my intelligence? Of course I understand what I'm reading. Now get lost. <laughs> Something like that. He could have offended him, but he, t he had the boldness to ask this question at the right time. So when you and I want to share the gospel with someone, I think one of the lessons I learned here is sometimes it's really appropriate simply to ask a question. That might be the way that the Lord will line you up with that individual in such a way that you can present the truth to them. Jesus did that to the woman at the well. Well, he didn't ask a question, but he asked a favor. He said, please give me a drink. And that started the whole conversation off. So he didn't start preaching at her. He asked for her to give him a favor. Here, Philip asks a question. It's an obvious question. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. God had sent him down. Here's the man he's supposed to talk to. He's reading the Bible. <laughs> so do you understand this? God sent me down to talk to you. So do you understand what you're reading? Instead of preaching to people, sometimes it might be the best way to simply ask a question, to enter into a dialogue, to get, them, to get this back and forth going. Drawing them out, finding them out with what they believe, what their questions happen to be. So Philip, again, he's partnering with God. God had put this hunger in the eunuch's heart. Philip partners with him by simply asking a question, which did require a little bit of boldness on his part. Because he might have offended the man, but he does it anyway. Okay, the fourth thing we see God doing. God told Philip to go up and join the chariot. The Spirit of the Lord said, verse 29, go up and join this chariot. How did Philip partner with God? Verse 30, Philip ran up. He ran. <laughs> he ran. He didn't amble. He didn't meander. He didn't walk. He ran. Sometimes if God tells you to go invite your neighbor across the street to a Bible study, we probably run the opposite way, right? Because we're scared of that situation. But Philip is running to do what God told him to do. And I think it's important that Philip ran, not because he would miss the eunuch, but he might miss the scripture because he's reading Isaiah 53. And if he takes a sweet time getting to him, he's going to be on to Isaiah chapter 54. <laughs> and Isaiah chapter 53 is the chapter that he really wants because that's the best evangelistic Old Testament text there is. So it, it, all of this tells me that it's really important that when the Lord speaks to you, that you obey immediately. You don't put it off. You do what the Lord tells you to do. Okay, number five. God arranged it so that the eunuch was reading Isaiah chapter 53. And this eunuch, turns out he was a humble enough man to learn from somebody else, even a commoner. Someone he didn't even know, a stranger. He's so hungry for the truth that he invites Philip to come up into the chariot and explain it to him. <laughs> I, it's almost too good to be true when you read this story. Like how many situations actually come up in our lives like this one? He just happened to be reading Isaiah chapter 53, unarguably the most evangelistically clear and Christ-centered passage in the entire Old Testament. That's what I would say. 
I mean, it's amazing when you read Isaiah 53. It's like reading one of the Gospels. It's like someone at the foot of the cross describing what's happening. That's how clear Isaiah 53 is. And talk about a divine setup. God has done everything here. He prepared the man's heart, gave him a hunger for the truth. He got him reading a passage about Jesus Christ, the substitute for sin, the slain lamb. And then he brings to him an evangelist to explain the way of salvation. And you might think, well, Brian, that just sounds like a bunch of dumb luck. Like just, just chance. I don't believe in chance. I don't believe in dumb luck. I don't believe in fate. But I do believe in the sovereign providence of God. And I think that's what we see here. The sovereign providence of God. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things after the counsel of his will. When he arrives, the eunuch asks him a question. I'm sorry, Philip asked the eunuch a question. Is, I'm sorry, I had it right the first time. The eunuch asks him, who's he talking about? Is it himself or somebody else? It's like a perfect setup for Philip to preach the truth to him at that point. This would be like one of us going to Starbucks. And we buy our drink and we sit down at the table. And the guy next to us is reading a Bible. And we, we look over there and say, how you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm good. What are you reading? I, I'm reading this Bible. My grandfather gave it to me. And I, I don't know what's happening to me, but I've just been feeling so guilty about the mess I've made of my life. I've lied to people. I've hurt people. I've cheated on my wife. My life's a mess. And I'd really like to know if there's any way if there is a God, and if there is a God, could he, could he forgive me? Hey, do you know anything about what's in this book? Could, could you guide me and show me? <laughs> I mean, that would be kind of like a modern-day scenario of what God is doing for Philip here in this situation. And if that happened to one of us, we'd probably pass out on the spot or fall out of our chair. <laughs> we think, how? This just doesn't happen. <laughs> but it happened here. So how does Philip partner with God? Verse 35 says, he opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. He didn't preach the law. He didn't preach his denomination or his church. He didn't preach his pet doctrines. He just preached Jesus. That, in fact, wherever you look at Philip preaching, that's, that's his subject matter. It's Christ, wherever he goes. And that's what lost people need. They need Christ. Christ is the gospel. He's the whole sum and substance of the good news. So he's the one that we need to be focusing on. So when the Lord gives you an opportunity to talk to someone, make sure you talk to them not just about your church or inviting them to church. Talk to them about the person of Jesus because that's where life is. That's where salvation is. And then the sixth thing that God does here, he brought the eunuch to faith. How do we know? Well, verse 37 gives us his words, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now you say, well, but that has brackets around it. Or in your Bible, I don't know how it's put, but that tells us that this is a textually uncertain passage, meaning we're not sure if that should be in the original or not. It could be that a scribe added that in over the centuries. It's possible. But even if he did, let's assume that this was added by a scribe that wouldn't really change anything because if the guy, if, if 
the eunuch is asking Philip, hey, I want to be baptized. What's stopping me from being baptized right now? That would tell you that he probably has faith in Christ. Because Philip has just been preaching to him about Christ. And if he wants to get baptized, it must mean that he has this allegiance now or this commitment to the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, just a few minutes ago, he was a Jewish proselyte searching the scriptures for answers. Now he's done a complete 180, and he believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How did that happen? Well, John 6.35 tells us that to come to Jesus is the same thing as to believe in him. And John 6.45 says that no one can come or believe in Christ unless the Father draws that person. So I think what we see here is God drawing him. That's why he's coming to faith. God is doing a work in his heart. God himself had been speaking to this eunuch's heart through the lips of Philip. And whenever the Lord uses you or I in that kind of a way, it's, it's a wonderful and thrilling experience to, to know that the Lord was actually speaking through you to somebody else. That's what he's doing through Philip here. Have you ever experienced the Lord's actually speaking through you? And you, you know it was the Lord because you see his powerful effect afterwards. That person comes to faith. They want to be baptized. They want to follow Jesus. So the first reason that we believe that uh, the Lord brought him to faith is he wants to be baptized. Secondly, it tells us in verse 39 that he went on his way rejoicing. And one of the common evidences of salvation is spiritual joy. I don't know if you can remember back to when you were converted, but in my life, that was one of the things I remember very clearly, is this new joy I had. Never had it before. I was just so happy. I would, I would sing <laughs> praise songs in, in grocery stores or in the top of my lungs driving down the road in my car, just because I was this new joy that the Lord put there. Now, how did Philip partner with God? God brought him to faith, so what does Philip do? He baptizes him. That's his response. He's partnering, he's, he's a fellow worker with God. Philip saw that the Lord had drawn him to Christ, so he, he, he baptizes him. Now it's interesting to notice a couple of things about his baptism here. Number one, it appears that it was not baptism by sprinkling, because verse 38 says, they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and then they came up out of the water. Now if all he had to do was sprinkle a few drops of water on his head, like I was sprinkled as an infant, there would be no reason for both of them to go back down into the water and come up out of the water. He could have just dunked his hand out of the water and sprinkled them a few times. It, it does appear from this that the, the logical conclusion is that this is a baptism that requires a lot of water. Both of them had to go down into it. So that's the first thing we see. The word baptize literally means to be immersed or submerged. It's used of uh, cucumbers being submerged in the juice so that they, they become pickles. You know, that, that's the kind of word, this word baptize. The other thing that this story tells us is that he baptized him immediately. I mean, he had just been talking to him. <laughs> they're, they're going down the road in the chariot. He's explaining Isaiah 53, and it's all about Jesus. And he says, okay, okay, what prevents me from being baptized? Look, there's water over there. 
right? It happens immediately. And that is a pattern we see throughout the book of Acts. Now, I know that in a lot of churches, we don't do this, right? We have, cla- we have a class, like a, a new Christian's class, and someone's got to go through the class before they can get baptized. And sometimes that can take weeks or months, or in some cases, even years, before the church feels like this person is finally ready to get baptized. But in the Bible, in, in the early church, that didn't, that didn't happen. Let me give you a couple examples. The day of Pentecost, 3,000 people repented, and they were baptized that same day. Cornelius, the Spirit of God comes upon him and his household. They start speaking in tongues and prophesying. Um, take away that prophesying part. They spoke in tongues, and Peter goes ahead and baptizes them right away. Um, the Philippian jailer and his household, they came to faith. That very night, Paul takes the Philippian jailer and his household, and he baptizes them. So like within 24 hours, all of this is happening. So if someone comes to faith in Christ, unless there's some really good reason not to, I would say, baptize them. And also, have you ever thought about who is supposed to be the one that does the baptizing in the New Testament? Have you ever wondered about that? Is it supposed to be the apostles? Or maybe the pastors? Maybe deacons? (laughs) So in Acts chapter 9, there is a guy, he's called Ananias, one of the disciples. That's all, he has no position. He's just a disciple there in Damascus. His name's Ananias. He's the one that baptizes the great apostle Paul. And the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. Now who was the Great Commission given to? If it was only given to the apostles, then only the apostles should be the ones that baptize. If the Great Commission is given to the whole church, then the whole church has the opportunity to baptize. In in the New Testament, there's no big emphasis put upon who does the baptizing. Jesus himself didn't baptize. He gave that to his disciples. Paul could even say, I thank God that I baptized only Crispus and Gaius. Baptizing was not a big part of Paul's ministry. He did it occasionally, but other people did it as well. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, if God enables you to make a disciple, then the next thing you're supposed to do is baptize that disciple. That's how I read it. So this gives the average Christian, the ordinary Christian, the opportunity to be involved in the the wonderful work of not just leading them to Christ, but then baptizing that person, right? And so now they are a baptized follower of the Lord Jesus, which is a wonderful privilege. I would like all of you to have the privilege of baptizing someone. Usually the person who leads of an individual to Christ does the baptizing. The last thing I want to share with you here is that God snatches Philip away. Verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) This is the only time in the Bible that I can recall, at least in the New Testament, that someone is snatched away except for the rapture of the church. When we are caught up together to be with the Lord in the air. It's the same idea. The Spirit of the Lord snatches him and somehow just takes him from one place to another because 
uh, verse 40 says he found himself at Azotus. It's like he's, he's, in, he's on this desert road one moment, and the next moment he's at Azotus. Azotus was 20 miles away, but it appears that he, he was just translated there instantaneously. So how did Philip partner with God? Verse 40 says that as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now, okay, so Azotus is here on the Mediterranean Sea, the coastline. Caesarea is also on the coastline up north, but on the way from Azotus to Caesarea, you've got Lydda and Joppa. When we read chapter 9, we're going to read about Peter's ministry. And when Peter goes to those two villages, he finds Christians there. How did Christians get in Lydda and Joppa? I think it was through Philip's ministry. As he's passing through these villages, he's preaching the gospel. And if you guys watched the movie The Jesus Revolution, you noticed there was a man in there named Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie Frisbee had a gifting as an evangelist. Um, the stories that are told about him are really crazy, amazing stories. I'll just tell you one. I, I saw this on a YouTube video where this one guy was sharing his experience. He was, a, he was part of um, Love Song. And one of the very first Christian bands way back like in the late 60s. And Lonnie Frisbee would call these guys up and say, hey, I, I want you to come with me. And so they get in his car. He'd drive down the road. He'd stop, he'd look up the second story of this apartment complex, and he would take these guys up to this apartment complex, rap on a door, and the guys would open the door, they're all smoking weed in there, and he would say, we are servants of the Most High God, and we've come here to proclaim the way of salvation to you, <laughs> and, and can we come in and speak to you? And they invited them in, this is a true story, the guys played some songs on their guitars, Christian songs, and then Lonnie preached to them for a few minutes. Two of the eight people that were in that room gave their lives to Christ on the spot. They responded. To, and this is just one of the stories that's been circulated over the years. Uh, Chuck Girard, who is the leader of Love Song, tells this story. In, so he just had an anointing on him. He would go down to the, the beach and witness to people and baptize them. They would come to faith and he'd baptize them there in the ocean. I think Philip was kind of like that. He had this gifting, this anointing on his life for evangelism. And uh, so he travels through these villages, Lydda and Joppa. He's preaching to the people about Christ. Some of them are coming to faith. Peter comes along later, and there's already Christians there because of Philip's fruitful ministry. So he partners with the Lord. By, <clears throat> the Lord lifts him up and sets him down into Zotus. And so Philip says, thank you, Lord. I had to walk 50 miles to get there, but you gave me a free ride to the next town. I'm going to preach for you as I get, make my way. And when he gets to Caesarea, he, he stays there and he lives there. And we find him in Acts chapter 21, still in Caesarea, many, like 20 some years later, he's still in that town. And he's raised four virgin daughters who are prophetesses. So he's a godly man. His, his godly life has been emulated by his daughters. The Lord has gifted them with this, this beautiful gift of prophecy. So you can see that, yes, he is an evangelist, 
but he's also a, a godly man who's been able to express that faith and his, his children have followed in his path. So the whole point that I wanted you to get from this story is that Philip partners with God. God does one thing, Philip responds by partnering with God. And I think that can be a pattern for our lives. Look for the ways that God is working and seek to respond and partner with him. Instead of saying, Lord, I'm going to do this, and I'd really like it if you would bless that work, maybe we should flip it around and say, Lord, what are you doing? Show me what you're doing so that I can be involved with what you're already doing. It's a little, it's a different mindset. And sometimes we don't know what the Lord is doing until we get involved. So we have to take that into account. I'm thinking about the discovery study that we started. At this point, I can see what the Lord's doing. He's working on this woman and her son. But we have no way of knowing that before we got started. So I guess there's a mix and match here. Sometimes we just need to go out in faith and try something that you feel the Lord's putting on your heart. But as you see the Lord working, get involved in what he's doing. So it's, it's our job now to, to help, to stimulate, to encourage the faith of this woman and her son. To start meeting with them. Uh, to do whatever we can to encourage them in faith. So I just want to encourage you. Ask yourself, where do I see the Lord working? Is there any area of my life where the Lord's already doing something? Get involved in being a fellow worker with God in that thing. And I want to encourage you. In fact, I, I just want to challenge you to make this your prayer this week. Like every day... Ask the Lord, Lord, where are you working and how can I be involved in what you're doing? And ask him to show you what he's doing. Because it's an exciting thing when the Lord works in your life. That's why we started off with Ephesians 2.10. Because it's an exciting thing to, to, to live the Christian life. Because God has works prepared for us before the foundation of the world. And we get to discover those works. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask for your help, especially your guidance. Lord, we ask for your guidance and leading. Show us where you are working and our friendships and the people that we know, the people around us, the people that live close to us. Lord, show us what you're doing and help us to be quick to partner with you in that. Lord, I pray that you would enable many within this church to be involved in leading someone to Christ and baptizing them. Have the joy of seeing that newfound faith in Jesus Christ. So we do pray, Lord, that this would be our daily prayer. Lord, may we partner with you in Christ's name. Amen.